Orcas and salmon are friends that need help. Our ocean pals are facing some trouble. Less trouble, more bubbles. There's so much we can do. Do you know what I'm thinking? Let's start preaching extinction. Hello, and welcome back to the Breaching Extinction podcast. For those of you that are new here, the Breaching Extinction podcast explores the plight of the endangered southern resident killer whales through interviews with the people trying to save them. There are currently less than 80 southern resident killer whales left, and they are currently threatened by lack of prey, vessel noise, and water toxins. All these factors impact one another and play a significant role in their population decline. They have historically spent much of their time in the Salish Sea. However, they've been seen less and less likely forced out of their home by lack of prey as well as busy and toxic waters. I'm your host, Erica Worth, and I decided to start this podcast in 2019 after spending a summer working in the Salish Sea and learning about these animals. Each week, I dive into a new conversation with guests from varying perspectives. I approach these topics through an interdisciplinary lens in hopes of uncovering the intricacies of this complex issue. Through this, I hope to share insight as well as fit the puzzle pieces together needed to save this species. I hope you guys enjoy this podcast. If you have any questions or are interested in being featured on the podcast or sponsoring us, please reach out over Instagram at Breaching Extinction or send an email to info at breachingextinction.com. Thanks. Hello, everybody. Welcome back. I hope you all had a wonderful week. I just wanted to hop on here and do a couple little announcements before we get started with this week's podcast. So we are making some changes around here for the last two years or so. We focused solely on the Southern Resident Killer Whales, and that definitely is still going to be a focus of this podcast. Uh, But as you will see throughout this episode, it's super important to focus on the ecosystem as a whole rather than just species or individuals. So we're going to dive into some different topics going forward. Last week, we talked about blue whales as well as human wildlife conflict. This week, we are going to talk about our sea stars. So it's super exciting. Um, This was a super fun episode, so I hope you guys enjoy it. And we are getting ready to do a new book, potentially bringing on another new Porpoisode host. Um, and I would love to hear from you guys on if there are any books that you guys are interested in reading in along with us, as well as if there are any topics um, in the Salish Sea that you would like us to cover. So essentially now I'm just going to be moving into covering more broad topics in the Southern Resident home range. We will expand out probably a little bit as well, but just different topics, different animals. Um, so shoot us a message on Instagram. I'll probably put like a little pull out there sometime this week, um, but definitely let us know um, if there's something that you want to hear about. So their home range is all the way from British Columbia down to Monterey, California. So anywhere in between there, or if there's just something else you want to hear about, let us know. Also, we are going to be working to get back on our normal posting schedule, which I've been saying that forever, but um, I'm actually going to do it this time. Um, so we are planning to do episodes coming out every other Monday and then regular episodes coming out on Fridays. We've also have quite a few, uh, new listeners here. So I do want to welcome you all here. We have had a bit of a boom in our audience here. So welcome to the Breach and Extinction podcast, and I hope you guys enjoy it. 
Um, but yes, that is all. I hope you guys all have a wonderful week. And Krusty says, have a good week. Krusty, what? What? Say, say thanks for coming. Thanks for listening. Okay. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Breaching Extinction podcast. I hope you guys all had a wonderful week. This week, I'm here with Jason Hoden, who is a professor and researcher at the University of Washington studying sea stars. Um, how are you doing today, Jason? Doing just fine. How are you? Great. Thank you. Um, can you give us a brief introduction about who you are? How did you get into this work studying sea stars? Where did your interest come from? And what's your current position? I'm a research scientist at the University of Washington's Friday Harbor Labs, which is our marine biology lab um, in the Salish Sea. And uh, I guess I got into it. I was a graduate student uh, in the 90s at the University of Washington in what was then the zoology department. And my focus at the time was insect metamorphosis. And I would say that the thing that has really carried through my whole career as it were from uh, graduate school, actually before that, my interests through graduate school and all the way up into the present is my fascination with metamorphosis. And um, I guess the way I got into studying uh, what I do now is that while I was a graduate student, I came out here to Friday Harbor Labs and took a summer course on invertebrate embryology, where we got the chance to look at the embryos and larvae of tons of different marine invertebrates of all different groups. And I got to see metamorphosis in the ocean in, in many of these groups right in front of my eyes in a microscope for the first time, totally blew my mind. And I was already thinking then about how I you know, still love insects and would love to finish my PhD in it, but afterwards, I think I wanna work on that. And so that's what got me studying metamorphosis in the ocean. And in particular, what brought me to studying sea stars and their cousins, the sea urchins and related groups, is that the metamorphic process in that group of, of organisms, which is called the echinoderms, the spiny skinned animals, uh, that metamorphosis is what I think of as the most radical example of metamorphosis of a change of form during the life of an organism of anything that I'd ever seen. Uh, they change from a small planktonic uh, larval form that, that uh, is, you know, about, um, you know, about a, a less than the half of a size of a penny or of, of a dime, say, uh, in length. And uh, they transform in from a floating organism like that that's got bilateral symmetry like us. So it's got a left and right side. And it, you know, it looks like a lot of other animals in that regard. And then it changes into this totally crazy adult form that we know of of sea stars and sea urchins that have this radial body with multiples of five and how they accomplish this um, incredible transformation, complete and utter reorganization of their body in just a very, very short time, ultimately, uh, the, you know, rapid, the, the rapid part of the process can take place in just 10 minutes. And how they can do that is just something that has been fascinating to me and I've studied ever since. So that got me into studying these early life stages and these um, uh, key parts of the life cycle of these organisms. And it turns out that those are issues that are important for studying the life cycle of an organism that you want to grow in captivity. And that's what got me into working on the endangered species in the captive breeding program. That is really fascinating. So, okay, 
it only takes 10 minutes for them to switch from a larvae to like a full on sea star? Yeah, so so let me, let me um, that's true, but let me also qualify that slightly. Okay. So, so they, uh, they are a functioning, swimming, feeding, eating larva, feeding on plankton. Mm-hmm. And then they will change within minutes to something that can never swim again and that, and that lives on the seafloor. And that will happen, that can literally happen within 10 minutes. But they, they have a couple of tricks uh, up their epidermis, if you will, that allows them to do that transformation so quickly. And what they've basically done is they've got little pockets inside of their larval body with their juvenile body already developing. So it's almost like they've kind of like, you know, like, you know, you imagine they sort of like cheat the way that a cooking show cheats, you know, that they've got something already in the oven uh, going at the time that they're showing you the recipe. So then they can reveal the final product quickly. And so they've got the, uh, the structures for the juvenile growing inside their body. And then at, during that rapid uh, radical transformation moment where they stop swimming, they end up on the seafloor, they basically reveal this uh, forming juvenile body and quickly dissolve their larval body. And then you've got a little something that you can recognize as a little urchin or a little sea star. That's incredible. Okay, so most of our listeners are here for whales and have been here for whales. So can you just give us, which you kind of already have, the basic ecology of the sea stars and like if you have a little bit of like an evolutionary history that is interesting to people as well. So can you just lay down basic, what is a sea star? Okay, yeah, so um, well, let me just say, I mean, I'm gonna answer that question in a slightly different way and and sort of say what, uh, um, coming from the perspective of someone who appreciates whales, I mean, you can't appreciate whales without appreciating the fact that they are not just these giant, incredible organisms with amazing behavior. They are functioning members of their ecosystem that are both contributors and totally dependent on the full functioning of their ecosystem. And so uh, people who study whales know um, very well how dependent they are on food and how dependent they are on salmon and how salmon themselves are dependent on the entire functioning marine ecology all the way up into the estuaries and rivers where they, uh, where they spawn. Um, so you can't really think about an individual organism in isolation. You think about it as it relates to its ecology, right? And so in the, in the Pacific Northwest, when it comes to, let's just stick with salmon, uh, in the early life stage of salmon, when they come down the river and they end up in the ocean, they're small, um, vulnerable fish that are, you know, that are members of, for example, the kelp forest ecosystem that we have here in our, in our region. And those are nursery grounds and provide a lot of the, uh, you know, the, the, the energy and the food that eventually makes its way up through the food web all the way up through salmon and into whales. And so, uh, so that kelp forest ecosystem, if we can, if we can all agree now, that, that a healthy kelp forest ecosystem is healthy salmon, is healthy whales, is a healthy ocean. Uh, healthy kelp forest ecosystem is also dependent on many, many other organisms as well. And this is where something like a predatory sea star, like the sunflower star study comes in. They are the largest sea star in the world. Uh, they're, they can be the size of a large bicycle tire. Uh, and they are, they are predators on all kinds of organisms on the seafloor. And, you know, again, to maybe return to an organism that, you know, your, uh, the people who are maybe your standard listeners 
think about more something like a shark. You know, mm-hmm. you all know well how important sharks are to function ecosystems. These top predators, they don't just go around eating things and killing stuff and taking away diversity. They actually structure diversity. So when you take out the top predators, it throws everything out of balance, right? And the same thing is true for the sunflower star as well. They're, they feed on all kinds of organisms on the seafloor and they keep these populations of things that can grow like weeds in their absence in check. And so when you lose a species, like we've recently lost the sunflower star in large part of its range, as we'll get into, uh, it, it causes all kinds of consequences for life on the seafloor, making its way all the way up through, you know, uh, the ecosystem. And so, and so that's, you know, so, so thinking about the, the functioning of a predatory sea star, for example, eating a sea urchin that itself eats kelp, you know, you can now predict what happens if the sea star is not present and you got um, sea urchins that are not um, fearful of sea stars being around and they don't really have predators around that they can ha- devastate the kelp. And this is what we think is one of the contributors to what's happening in California right now uh, to a large degree and maybe happening in smaller degrees here in the sea and our surroundings of declining kelp. Uh, and so all these things are connected. So it's not about individual species you know, and you know, it's just like it's not about just individual whales. They're they're super important in their own right, but also you know, as members of oceanic ecosystems. Absolutely. So, how many species of sea stars do we see in the Salish Sea? We've got dozens, um, and those are the ones you know. And it depends on you know whether you're a lumper or a splitter, I guess, in terms of uh, how many you want to count. But we have lots and lots of sea stars, uh, sea star types around here, and they range everywhere from the intertidal. So the beachcombers uh, among your audience here, I'm sure have seen sea stars when they've been um, looking on rocky shores, for example, and they'll go all the way down to the deep sea and to kelp forests, to muddy areas, to uh, uh, you know, intertidal, um, outer coast, to our protected regions here in the Salish Sea and so forth. So uh, sea stars are common, writ large they're common, uh, members of all kinds of habitats. For sure. Okay. So can, you kind of already went into the role that they play in the ecosystem. Can you give us a history of like their population? Because obviously we now have like the sea star wasting disease and then you have an endangered population. Can you tell us about their overall history in the Salish? Okay. So if you're talking about um, uh, sunflower stars in general, which is what we study the, that I um, alluded to earlier, the big predatory sea star, uh, so it kind of took everybody by surprise, you know, they, they were so common and so, you know, uh, so often found in such a variety of habitats. So I described a bunch of habitats that sea stars can live in. Actually, sunflower stars live in a lot of those. They can be in deeper waters. They can be shallow. They can even be in the intertidal. They can be in kelp forest. They can be on softer bottoms in rocky um, subtidal areas and so forth. So they can exist in a wide variety of habitats and people who study the ocean or you know, recreational divers before 2013 would not be surprised to see a sea star, to see a sunflower star, no matter where you are, whether you're looking off the dock, whether you're looking at low tide or you're a diver um, diving around a kelp forest, it would be a common sight. And so to see them all but disappear 
in the course of just a couple of years was really, really shocking. So what happened was in 2013 and 2014 about, we started hearing reports of scattered areas around the, around the uh, Northeast Pacific, our region, uh, from Alaska down to, let's say, Northern Mexico, uh, where sea stars were showing up with a disease that scientists knew about but had never seen in this dramatic an extent, which was a disease called wasting disease. Uh, it ends up, if it's uh, in its worst form, it can kill uh, the, the star. It basically dissolves them into goo. Um, in, in, the worst, in the worst case. So they really do sort of waste away. They get these white lesions and eventually dissolve. Uh, so so the, uh, what we started seeing in 2013 and 2014 is that this was showing up in not just one species, but multiple species of sea stars. You asked before about how many we have around here, a dozen, a couple dozen, depending on how you count. As far as we know, every single one of the sea stars that we have in our region was affected to some degree. Uh, so you saw some individuals that at least showed some sign of illness. Uh, now we didn't see dramatic population declines in every species. Some weren't that badly affected. So for example, a uh, species that some of your beachcomber uh, members of your audience might be familiar with um, uh, are the blood star. It's a bright red sea star that you know is unmistakable in the intertidal when you see it. Uh, that is actually a complex of a number of species, but we don't think that they were particularly badly affected, although we did see individuals that were sick. So that's on one extreme. And on the other extreme were very well-known species like the ochre star mm -hmm. uh, and the sunflower star, which we saw dramatic population declines. Not only a lot of animals uh, sick and dying uh, during those early years, but in the subsequent years with population surveys, seeing very, very few of them. And, you know, to a lot of the members of your audience who spend a lot of time in the water, you'll remember this probably most of all because of the ochre star. Uh, you know, one of the things that I remember most when I first moved to the Pacific Northwest in the early 90s was that when you go down to the water around here um, on a rocky shore uh, in the Salish Sea at low tide, uh, what, what one of the most striking visual images is, is all these blotches of purple and orange along the shoreline, just above the low tide line. And these are ochre stars up there feeding on mussels up in the intertidal. And, you know, in the course of just a couple of years in 2013 and 2014, that basically was gone. You would go around at low tide and you wouldn't see a single, if you saw one orange or uh, purple, those are the two color forms of an ochre star, uh, that whole day, you'd feel lucky. Uh, and so it was pretty dramatic. And then um, as it turned out, sunflower stars were even worse affected than that. And we now know that their populations were set back in our region, probably to 10% of what they used to be. So a really, really, really dramatic population decline. And in some areas like California, they are all but disappeared. There's been very, very, very few sightings at all of any sunflower stars in the entire state of California in the last half a decade. So, um, so it's quite dire and pretty dramatic. And so, you know, that's, that's kind of the background for the work we're doing. Absolutely. So, okay. So this is a very serious issue. What do you guys think the cause of it is? Yeah. So I wish I could give you an answer. Okay. It's, um, I'm not a disease biologist. It's not really my purview, but um, unfortunately some of your listeners might actually be surprised by that. You might think like, oh, I heard that they knew what the cause of it was. So there was a paper that came out early on during the wasting pandemic, it's appropriate to call it a pandemic, 
um, across three international borders. Um, and uh, um, it, um, uh, it was thought to be a virus, but it turned out that the data for that wasn't super strong. And over the subsequent years, uh, the, the authors of that original study that proposed that virus is the cause basically backed away from it and said that, no, we changed our mind. Um, you know, we've looked a little bit more at the data and it doesn't really seem right. So unfortunately, uh, um, that was, those years were really the best time to study the disease. I was about to say, un unfortunately, the disease has declined since then. It's obviously not a bad thing that right. the disease has declined since then. We're happy about that. But if you're a disease biologist, it's harder to study a disease where the incidence is low. The best time to study it is when there's a lot of it around, you know? And so, so it's become uh, more difficult to study now. And uh, there's been, and also just, you know, as scientists, when we think that something is solved, there might be less of an impetus for students or other people to want to look into it. So I think that it kind of like set us back um, quite a ways, unfortunately, that we thought we knew the cause and now we say we don't. And so now there's been a bit of a renewed interest in it and an effort into studying what it is. But, you know, really, ultimately, uh, we don't know what the cause is. And and that's that makes it really difficult to study, um, you know, to do anything related to the disease, obviously, but also, you know, to sort of think about the prospects for these species in the future and not knowing whether this disease might come back again and, you know, whether the ones that have seen it previously might be susceptible to the next wave or what have you. All the same kinds of things that we think about with COVID and uh, waves and variants and, and those kind of things. Uh, you know, we think about that with sea star wasting disease too, with one exception. Within weeks after us finding out about COVID, we knew that the cause was a specific virus. We even knew the sequence and we were already in the process of developing vaccines and treatments for it, right? So here we are eight years later um, in sea star wasting disease and uh, you know, we haven't progressed much before um, past step one of that process. And you know, it's uh, unfortunate and you know, frustrating obviously, um, honestly, but you know, we deal with what we have to do. Absolutely, yeah, that definitely is frustrating. And you know, I. I feel like people do their best, but, you know, humans are humans at the end of the day. And like, you know, scientists are humans, so they can't do everything. Um, and, um, and, you know, not, not complaining necessarily, but people are probably a little bit more focused on something like COVID than they are about sea star wasting disease. 100%. Uh, yeah. You know, putting the research effort into finding the cause. Absolutely. Completely makes sense. Um, okay. So what are the sunflower stars eating? Yeah. So sunflower stars have a very, very varied diet. And so that includes everything from shellfish, all different kinds, uh, to sea urchins, to probably dead organisms too. One of the ways that we have tried to uh, catch sunflower stars, and we've actually found them and, and fishermen have told us, is using crab pots and crab bait. Um, and they seem like they're particularly uh, attracted to things like turkey and chicken. And that might well be because, you know, a nice treat for a sunflower star might be a dead seabird. Okay. Um, so they um, they are pretty generalist. Okay. That's Scavengers and predators. Yeah. Very interesting. Um, so obviously Friday Harbor Labs is working on a couple of projects to help the sea stars. Can you elaborate kind of on this like sea star breeding project? Yeah. So in 2019, uh, I was approached by the Nature Conservancy and um, they asked me whether I might be interested in undertaking uh, an attempt to breed this sea star uh, in the lab. 
And, you know, I had actually kind of been thinking about that. As I told you, larvae, metamorphosis, th this is my thing. And, uh, you know, and I know because it's my field that there haven't been that many studies into those early, early stages after the larval stage when they go through metamorphosis and become a little tiny juvenile on the seafloor, uh, you know, basically the size of a, you know, a rice grain, I mean, a small kernel rice grain or something like that, you know, um, they, uh, that stage is very, very poorly studied. As you can imagine, finding it in the field is almost impossible. And it's, we don't know what to feed them. We don't know how to grow them. We don't know what conditions to grow them under. So I was thinking it might be fun to study this, but, you know, I didn't have any funding for it. And, and the Nature Conservancy came up to me and said, we'd like to talk to you about, you know, doing this project. So they provided support and funding and collaboration on this. And, uh, and in 2019, we set about collecting sea stars and then trying to breed them. So, and ever since we've been, you know, making our way through trying to figure out how to do this, to uh, breed them at the right time of year, to raise their larvae through a rel relatively long planktonic larval stage where they're feeding on algae and need to be raised in a certain way, then transition them, figure out how they transition and transition them down into that metamorphic stage when they get down onto the seafloor and then figure out what to feed them, what conditions they need to be grown in and how to grow them up and how to optimize that uh, during you know, the, the, um, the, uh, the subsequent months and years after settlement. And so, um, and so we have now, uh, managed to grow them from uh, that little, that, you know, a larval stage. Um, they start off as an embryo about the size of a human embryo, which is small, a tenth of a millimeter. And they'll grow through those juvenile stages that I told you, and they'll end up, you know, we now have uh, sea stars that are, you know, about, let's say, um, the uh, size of a small, like, bread plate. Mm -hmm. um, two years later. Wow. So, and, and, uh, that's, you know, that might not seem very much because it's bread plates sound small, but if you think about how small they started, For sure. that's a lot of growth. That's like, you know, that's like growing to the size of a, um, of a, you know, uh, let's say, um, a, a Douglas fir tree from, you know, you know, a pine cone or something like that in two years. So full yeah. size. So it's yeah. How big do they get once they're full grown? So they can get to be the size of like a, you know, a garbage can lid or a, um, or a, uh, you know, big bicycle tire or something like that. They're okay. huge. Yeah. That's largest awesome. sea star in the world. One of the fastest sea stars in the world. They're also kind of well-known by their uh, incredible coloration. They're very, very diverse in terms of their coloration, which actually has been really helpful for us because our sea stars, we can recognize all of the individuals. We have them named and we know them all. Oh, that's cool. Um, so we can track their reproduction and behavior and uh, keep them in, in their health. Uh, and, um, and uh, you know, they, they um, also are well known as having an incredibly large number of arms, up to 24 arms. Your classic sea star you think of has got five arms, right? These mm -hmm. guys start with five at that little tiny juvenile stage that I talked about, but then they add arms throughout their whole life. So our, our um, uh, two-year-olds uh, that we have right now, the ones I described the size of, size of a bread plate, those sure. ones have about 15, 16 arms now. Wow. Yeah. That's incredible. 
Yeah. Um, so what it, do you know what the lifespan of one of these is, is if they're healthy? We don't. Um, the, the, um, we don't know it for any sea star, um, except for a couple of bits of information. People who've kept them for a long time, like researchers who kept them in the lab for a long time or aquarium, public aquariums who've had individuals that they've kept for decades. So we know that they can live sunflower stars and other stars for decades. But what we do know is that their cousins, the sea urchins, uh, those ones, we do know how to track their age. They actually have growth lines in some of their body skeleton. And so that's been determined that like one of the species that some of your listeners might be familiar with in our region, the largest sea urchin that we have is the red urchin. These um, bright red burgundy colored urchins with long spines uh, that can be you know, the size of our heads. Um, uh, those ones can be up to 250 years old. So wow. and really, if you think about that, the part of the reason why sea urchins can live that long is because we don't believe that they really undergo any kind of aging process. And that might be related to another trick that the echinoderms in general that sea stars are really famous for, their ability to regenerate. They lose body parts and they can grow them right back. You know, um, yep. some of them can grow back from a, like half body. Like, and they do that, they split in half and then grow the other half of their body back. So they have this incredible regenerative ability and that might be related to basically, they reset themselves in time all the time. They basically never age. They die of things like disease or being eaten by something or something like that, you know, or exposure to environmental conditions. So if that's true of sea urchins that they can live 250 years and sea stars also have this, uh, you know, this apparent lack of aging, I don't see any reason why sunflower stars couldn't be hundreds of years old either. That's insane. That is so cool. Um, I, I had no idea. I would have guessed that an animal like that, like only lives like maybe a couple decades. So that's like pretty incredible. Um, so a lot of them, like when do they reach sexual maturation? Cause I know so, I think you talked to us too about how these guys reproduce because it's not, you know, how mammals reproduce. Yeah. So we, we think that now based on, we didn't know the answer to this question because when you looked at a little sunflower star, like a juvenile or a smaller individual in the mm -hmm. field, we had no idea how old it was. It could be one, five, 10. We had no idea how quickly they grew, right? Um, we now know because we've done this in our lab now, we've grown them from that earliest stage right after they, you know, from the time that they're fertilized to the time that they become little juveniles on the seafloor and then up into the size they are now. And what we know is that the ones that we have, these two-year-olds are getting close to a size of animals that we've been able to reproduce. Okay. So we haven't actually attempted to breed our two-year-olds yet. We're probably okay. gonna wait till next year to try. Um, uh, we think that they, you know, they probably have a capacity to reproduce it. We think that they probably could reproduce if they needed to at this stage. But right now, they're mostly growing. They're, okay. they're growing so much all the time. They're putting most of their energy into growth. And we don't want to necessarily knock them off that trajectory and oh, force sure. them to breed at this point. Absolutely. So um, we didn't see them breed this year when the bigger adults, um, their parents basically, you know, breed in the, in the late winter. Um, and, um, and we saw that again this year. Um, we didn't see our little ones breed at that time of year, but we sort of suspect that they're probably state putting off the reproduction that they could do now to uh, later since they're growing so well at the moment. 
And so, so I would say, you know, if I had to guess two to three years. Okay. Awesome. Um, and then how do they reproduce? Cause obviously they're not like giving live birth. Um, no, although there are examples of live birth in the ocean and even in, um, uh, even essentially in um, different kinds of sea stars. There are some sea stars that brood their offspring. Um, wow. But uh, sunflower stars are not one of those. They have what's the more common kind of reproduction, both in sea stars and in organisms in the ocean in general and animals in the ocean in general, which is that they release their gametes, their eggs and their sperm into the sea, into the sea and there's external fertilization. So, uh, so that happens in the ocean and then the, the babies themselves swim away and okay. they're on their own for the rest of their lives. So there's no um, parental protection at okay. all in most of these organisms and sunflower stars are like that. And so what you can imagine is that this strategy, this strategy of releasing your offspring to fend for themselves in the wild, um, you can imagine that that's very costly to a lot of those offspring. They become food for a lot of other things or they drift far away from their need to go or what have you, or they don't find food to eat. So. Um, the result is that, you know, there's sort of like a spectrum of reproductive strategies and one extreme is us, which is having one or maybe just a few um, offspring at a time that sure. you protect for a very, very long time. You put a ton of parental care into each individual. On the other extreme are sunflower stars. They have millions, literally millions of babies at That's a time. Amazing. That most of them are going to die for whatever reason or another, or aren't going to survive to adulthood, but enough are bred that you know that uh, a few of them will make it and and so that's what keeps the species going okay so what like do you have an estimate on what their current population is and like what a healthy population looks like yeah well i mean i i this is not my area of expertise and i i don't have on the top of my head like how many sea stars we had in the area but it was you know you know uh multiple billions of of, of sunflower stars along the entire coast. Um, but, um, but in terms of um, in our local area, they were common. So, you know, if you went down at a low tide, you know, you would see them probably every time you went to the intertidal if you looked carefully, or if you went diving, you'd see one or more on every dive. Now you have to look in the right spot or you have to get lucky. So they're down to about one tenth of what they were before. Oh, wow. So, okay. uh, so the populations are low um, okay. and uh, we still are finding them, but, um, but and, and, um, and the other thing I should say is that this species has historically had a very, very broad range. It went all the way from Northern Mexico, from Baja, all the way up to Southeast Alaska. Okay, okay. that's very large, yeah. Yeah, and, um, but the disappearance of the stars we saw across their whole range of the species, but worse in the South. Um, which makes it seem like there might've been sort of a temperature reason related yeah. to it. And, um, and so pretty much gone from Mexico, as far as we can tell, haven't been seen. A few sightings recently in California, a few more than that in Oregon, and uh, maybe the outer coast of Washington. But it's not until you get here to the Salish Sea that you really see populations that were um, still present in any kind of reasonable numbers. And then, then as you go north through British Columbia and into Alaska, the populations are a little bit better, but still way down from their historical highs. Okay. 
Um, so what kind of management is like in place or is there any to try to protect these guys? Cause obviously you're doing your breeding program and then you release them into the ocean after this at some point. So at some point, um, that would be, that would seem like a, um, something that a lot of people are interested in. We're interested in supporting that. It's not a, it's not something you do lightly. We're not just going to walk right. down to the beach and throw For a bunch sure. of sea stars in there. Um, there is this disease. We're breeding things in the lab. We want to make sure not to spread the disease around and we want to make sure that, you know, they can do well out there. So there's a lot of tests that we would want to do in advance of making sure that it's safe and um, viable to be able to introduce them. Not to mention the fact that, you know, uh, there are all kinds of um, state and national local regulators of the, of our, you know, of our waters that would want to be, you know, would be, would need to be involved in those decisions. So it's not something that's going to happen like, this year or next year, but um, we might be doing some tests sometime soon in ways that you know we can do around here just to see whether or not the stars that we breed are they as um, are they as fit in a field context as they might be. So we could do that in cages, for example, in the okay. lab. Let's see. Um, so we're talking about those sorts of things, but even those experiments, we need to think carefully about them, make sure we're doing the right way. And it would be very, very helpful going back to an earlier conversation. Um, if we knew what the disease was, we would love to be able to test our stars, you know, in advance of being able to put them in the wild to see if they're harboring the disease. But we can't do that because we don't know what the disease is. Absolutely. No, that makes a lot of sense. And I think it's important too that you brought up that this is not something that you would do lightly. Because um, I think a lot of people, you know, maybe have great intentions, but it could, you know, have <laughs> catastrophic effects if it's not like something that's actually valuable. Um yeah, I, I had someone approach me once and they were like, hey, I, I want to start a business where I like reintroduce sea stars into the wild. And I was like, you need to talk to a scientist. I'm not qualified. And I don't think that that's I, I don't think you could just toss sea stars into the ocean that it would work like that. Um, but yeah, it's interesting. Um, so as the public, I mean, obviously, I'm sure it's really hard to manage this disease because we don't know what it is. We don't know what's going on. What can we as the public do to help sea stars? Yeah, so, I mean, there's, there's a number of things that I would say. Uh, first of all, I mean, the first one is the most kind of obvious ones. It's the ones that you already know. You know, you can ask the same question about whales, right? I mean, there's some very specific things that are, you know, impacts on whales. And then there's just kind of general stuff. I mean, we need a healthier ocean to be able to support the food and the habitats that the whales thrive in. Same thing goes for sea stars. For sure. And that goes for everything from protecting local waterways to not over harvesting things in the ocean to lower impacts on shorelines and on habitat, you know, uh, all, um, pollution, uh, you know, all the things that we know of that are the impacts on the ocean. These are stressors on our nearshore ecosystems where sunflower stars thrive. And so, you know, what I tell people is, and, you know, and if you think about it, this is like the same, I would answer this. If you ask me, what can we do about climate effects on the ocean? I would have answered the question exactly the same way. I mean, one thing we can do, uh, obviously, is reduce our emissions, right? That's a long-term um, strategy for, you know, climate change. But, but there's other things, all the things that are affecting the these critters from warming in the ocean. They're also being affected by overfishing, by um, habitat loss, by uh, nu nutrient addition, by pollution and so forth. And so, 
So reducing all those other stressors in, in, in a way, like it, it kind of makes you an ally of the ocean in the sense that you're letting the ocean be able to heal itself by not, you know, and, and you can, and the, and the great thing about these, these kind of strategies, these latter strategies, the long-term strategies are super important. The great thing about the short-term one is we could literally do them today, tomorrow, and we could decide as a society that we were gonna stop, you know, uh, using some sort of insecticide that gets into waterways and affects things, right? Like a regulation could come down and we could stop tomorrow. Um, the use of this, right? And so these things are within our immediate grasp and, um, and you know, the members of your audience, you know, know those kinds of actions that you can do to protect our watersheds and, uh, and our nearshore ecosystems, right? So that's, you know, that's the number one thing. The, num the second thing is for those of your, you know, I assume your audience are the kind of people who like to go out um, and, uh, and enjoy the ocean in, in a variety of ways, you know, whether it's uh, boating or, um, or diving or beachcombing or what have you, right? And, uh, and so there is a, uh, there's a website, seastarwasting.org, where you can go and make observations of sea stars. You can post healthy or unhealthy mm -hmm. sea stars, sunflower stars or any other species that you see. And uh, you, know, you can put a picture up there in your description if you got your GPS coordinates, great, um, and so forth, and, uh, and upload that information. And in fact, if uh, your viewers want to go to that website and take a look, you can find, for example, the three sunflower stars that were recently found in the Mendocino Coast in California, posted on seastarwasting.org with pictures, uh, which were the first ones that were documented in California in like four years or something like that. So, okay. you know, so um, so that's a uh, that's an important contribution that everybody can make if um, if you uh, if that's the kind of thing that you do. And then the third thing are things like I, I alluded to it earlier. Um, if, if people in your audience are crab fishermen or no crab fishermen, um, that's one sort of place where humans come into interaction with sunflower stars directly. People pull up their crab pots and they find a sunflower star inside. And, you know, I've seen crab fishermen pull up crab pots with sunflower stars inside. Obviously, they're not very happy about it. They, right. you know, they don't get crabs, their bait's gone, and there's this big, you know, slimy thing in there that they don't know what it is that mm -hmm. they don't want in there, right? And, you know, I would just stress that this is something that is an important member of the ecosystem that healthy sea stars mean healthy crabs and, you know, gently take that sea star out and please release it back into the wild. And so, uh, and so you know, and you can pass that along to your- I can uh, definitely family. pass that along. I actually have a fisherman coming on in a couple of weeks. Um, and he's very well connected and we have a ton of crab pots in Monterey right now. So I can absolutely pass that message along and get it out there. And he's got good relationships with people. So you say you have crab pots in Monterey in California. Yes. Yeah. And so if you find any sunflower stars in that crab pot, that would be a very, very big finding because there hasn't been a sunflower star seen in Monterey in years. Well, I will put that word out there and see if, if we find anything. Um, yeah, I now like that you're saying that they've never been seen in California. I'm like, this is a challenge. I should go out and tide pool and try to find some. Um, I will definitely put that word out there. And then hopefully if we have people listening, they can also spread that word too, because we get all kinds of folks that listen to the podcast. Sure. Um, and, and, and you can recommend to them uh, that they can contact me. I'm easy to find here at the University of Washington, uh, my email address and all. And if you send me a photo, um, that you've taken, I can tell you whether it's a sunflower star or what it might be. 
Awesome. Yeah, I will. I'll put the link to the cstarwasting.org as well as like a link with your page from UW on there so that sure. people can contact you um, in the episode description. Um, so I have a couple last questions for you. So what research projects have you worked on in the past or that you're currently working on that you found the most exciting or surprising? Okay, well, um, related to the uh, um, sea stars, definitely the most exciting was the fact that we found out. So, so, you know, let me just back up and say that as I told you earlier, my fascination is with metamorphosis. I love sea urchins and sand dollars and other kinds of uh, critters like that. They're really easy to grow in the lab and, um, and get them to metamorphosis. And so I study them all the time. Um, in, in, you know, press stories about the sea star disappearance, sea urchins are sometimes kind of painted as some sort of villain because they're eating the kelp. But really, you know, if there's any villain in it, it's us, you know, always, you know, the, the, the sea creatures are just doing what they do. And right. when, you have a, when you have an ecosystem out of whack, that looks leads to urchins pop, you know, growing out of control because they lack predators and they um, they lack the sort of full stability of the ecosystem that should uh, support them at at, um, at their kind of uh, you know moderate numbers. And so so, but I I love sea urchins. I love growing them. I love their um, watching them metamorphose. But what I've been doing lately is actually growing them and testing whether or not the little baby sea urchins that come out even smaller than the size of a, um, of a sea star when they settle down, about half the size, uh, it turns out that that's one of the things that the baby sea stars will eat, which was super exciting to see and very important because we didn't know what to feed them. That's so cool. in other words, it's not just the giant massive sea stars the size of a, of a garbage can lid feeding on um, a purple sea urchin. Mm -hmm. It's these tiny little, uh, barely you know visible with your naked eye stage of the sea stars that are feeding on the baby stage of sea urchins too. And so that not only was really gratifying because now we know what to feed them in our lab context and we can grow them more efficiently, but it's also I think potentially really really important because when we think about the ecology of the ocean almost everybody has in their mind a full grown organism. You know, you don't think about all the babies in between. When we think about kelp, what do you look, what do you think about when you think about a kelp? You think about a fully grown bull kelp. Right. You don't think about the fact that they started their life also as a microscopic stage on the seafloor that you wouldn't even recognize because it doesn't look anything like a bull kelp. Yeah. So they also have a metamorph or something like a metamorphosis in their lifestyle, life cycle too. And, and you know, if there's one thing you know, that I'll be, you know, evangelical if you were about, it's to, it's about the importance of these tiny, tiny little life stages. And that for a full understanding of the ecology, you can't ignore them. And yeah. we got to learn, and it's the stages that we know the least about, and they could be extremely important for, uh, you know, the functioning of, um, of uh, different aspects of the ecology. And we know they're in, important in the, in, in the situations that we know. And so, you know, that's been, you know, one of the things that we've been really interested in this project because those early stages are so critical for the project and also learning about them and showing the ways in which these organisms thrive and participate in their ecosystems at that, those stages has been very interesting and gratifying for me. Absolutely. That is really cool. Um, 
I don't know if you have any videos or pictures or things like that, but I would love to share that with some of our listeners. I think that they would find that interesting. Sure. Um, One of the questions I ask everybody on the podcast is what can we learn from the whales, but what can we learn from the sea stars? Well, I mean, what we can learn from the sea stars is the first thing that's so obvious to me is like one day you could be completely convinced that they're always going to be there. And then literally like the next day they're gone. Yeah. Um, That's how fragile our current ecosystems are. And let me, let me, let me go a little bit further. And this is speculating a bit, but I think that there's some reason to believe that this is true about our ecosystems right now. Like, you know, I kind of think about them and the way our ecosystems are holding together right now, like, like we're playing some giant game of Jenga. And we've, over the last hundred or more years, been removing individual pieces. And the basic ecosystem has more or less, in most cases, remained intact in mm-hmm. a lot of cases. But you pull out one last piece and all of a sudden the ecosystem collapses, right? And just like the game of Jenga falls down. And the Cal Forest ecosystem in California has literally undergone a dramatic phase shift from healthy kelp forests to areas dominated by sea urchins with no large kelp around um, in Northern California in just a matter of a few years. And so these shifts can happen really, really quickly. And I think the reason that they happen is because our ecosystems are more fragile than they used to be. And so, you know, instead instead of, it's not that I don't want you to focus on the sea star, I do want you to focus on the sea star, but that is telling you, that's, that's not telling you just how important the sea star is, it's also telling you how fragile our current ecosystems are. And if there's one lesson to learn, it's that we have a lot of work to do to restore our ecosystems, not only to being, you know, back to something that we recognize when we look at them, but actually under the surface, when you really look at them in detail, to be robust. Yes. Um, we, want, we don't want just a kelp forest. We want a robust kelp forest that when a big storm comes through and knocks it out, it's going to recover over the next couple of years. Yes. You know? and, uh, and so anyway, that's the big lesson. Absolutely. Well, I definitely appreciate um, having you on and I learned a lot. I'm sure our listeners are going to learn a lot too. So thank you for taking the time to be here and thank you for the work that you're doing for the sea stars. We'll be sure to keep eyes on your research and research from disease biologists as well to see if we figure out something soon. So thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for your interest and, uh, and keep in touch. Of course. Thanks so much for joining us, everybody. I linked everything down in the episode notes. So check out those episode notes if you're looking for more information. And if you find a sea star, a sunflower star, please reach out to Jason. That would be awesome. Alrighty, guys, be sure to submit um, any of your requests for episode topics. Uh, We are going to be putting something out for that this week. So um, let us know on Instagram. If you don't see the post, just send us a message. Alrighty, bye.